This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the On Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Andre Erickson. Dude, so nice to see you, man. Yeah, likewise. It's great to be here. The last time I saw you, you were on stage at Golang UK giving what I consider one of the best conference talks I've ever seen. In fact, I've got it posted up now because at some point this week i'm going to watch it again it was really good thank you very much we did also meet uh, for some uh, drinks afterwards but maybe you don't remember that part uh, I, I was i was drinking i may not remember much no <laughs> it ain't that bad <laughs> it ain't that bad but thank you very but much thank you very that much. talk was uh, it's called engineering innovation why constraints are critical there's just some really cool things you did in that talk so um everybody's got to, we're going to put that in the show notes so everybody watches that talk really 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 good oh where are you talking to us from today so i am in uh, in our office here in uh, stockholm sweden um i so we have an office here in sweden we also have one in the uk so i usually go back and forth every couple of months uh but uh, most of the time i'm here in stockholm so you like go to the uk for two months and work out of that office and then uh no it, that's that's a uh, very very small so all of the the work is here but uh you know the uk is a huge uh, market for for go so it's uh it's great to go there and, and meet up everyone we have a lot of users in the uk and obviously can't miss the gopher cons I was in Stockholm at least once, maybe twice, trying to remember. It was a cool place. I, I, I remember enjoying it. I don't remember much. I, I probably was only there for a few days, but but it was cool. I, I have positive vibes. That's cool. Uh, Stockholm is a wonderful city, especially in, in the summer. Uh, don't go in the winter. It's horrible. But I think I remember the conversation being how difficult housing was and that they were building new... But this was like, I don't know, maybe five years ago, man. So I don't know if that's improved, but everybody was complaining about housing at the time. Yeah. yeah. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Is that also the city that doesn't take cash at all anymore? Is that the city? Yes. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I was going to take cash out and somebody was like, don't bother. Nobody's going to take your cash. Everything's card. Yeah. All right. Andre, give everybody like two minutes about what you're doing today. Uh, so I'm the, the founder and CEO of Encore, which is a backend development platform for building cloud backends using Go. It's all written in Go, and uh, that's what I do. I spend a lot of time just like, you know, still working as a software engineer, which has been my you know career up to this point obviously as a ceo there's a whole lot more beyond that but uh it's such a technical product that even you know sales and marketing and uh you know it, it it's highly technical so i 
<laughs> try to do as much of that as possible to keep my my skills sharp, so to say. Describe this to me a little bit more because I I've heard of platforms like this that say that we we can help you build all your backends, but I've never worked with one, so I don't have any sort of visualization on what are you doing to eliminate my need for writing code in VS Code like I'm doing today and every day. I think so. My you know before I founded Encore, I was at Spotify for eight years and building backends every day. And Spotify is a huge platform organization, and they spend time building you know tooling to make backend development more productive. But even with that tooling, it's a huge amount of uh, time is being spent on you know managing infrastructure and dealing with the complexities of the cloud. And that's something that almost every company in the world is realizing. And so they build their own tooling to make backend development more productive. You know, it's like building internal platforms to uh, handle Kubernetes, to automate uh, parts of the development process, to simplify infrastructure management, to provide, you know, reproducible test environments, to, um, you know, provide a good workflow for developing locally, et cetera, et cetera. And because every single company in the world is going through the same journey of building this tooling for themselves, um, that's a huge amount of repetition. And every company is doing this because they see the same problem, which is that this is a huge time sink and we would rather be spending that time building our product, which is, which is really what you're trying to do. And... So Encore is essentially taking this that every single company is trying to build up themselves and building a product that companies can instead uh, buy instead of build. Uh, and that's a challenge because every company's infrastructure is slightly different. So there's a lot that goes into making that flexible and powerful enough to sort of work with a whole bunch of different use cases. But that's essentially what, what Encore is, is doing. And... Yeah, and then like a whole lot goes into how that works, like uh, how it works. Uh, it's all, all that is open source, and you can look at it, and there's nothing, nothing crazy going on. But it's all, you know, because it's built for Go, it's all based on you know static analysis and code generation, and really building a productive developer experience. Wow, that's pretty wild. I, I imagine you have videos and stuff, or something that even goes into more details. Maybe I can I can watch later, because yeah, I mean I work on. Is your product Kubernetes centric? Like it's assuming that you're building and running in Kubernetes. No, um, it's the only requirement really is you're building a backend that is running in the cloud, and it's written in Go, and uh, everything else. Like of course, like we're working on supporting new technologies, new types of infrastructure all the time. Um, but fundamentally, that's that's really the the use cases we're targeting. Yeah, because even for my service class and for clients, right, I use a local kind environment. I've got a make file and bring up my local Kubernetes cluster. I can develop all day on it. And then we hit some buttons and it goes to a staging environment and we pray the migrations worked. And then 
<laughs> at that point, I want to hand it off. Like, I don't want to deal with production, right? As a developer, I, I'm fine with getting you all the way to like stage, but leave me alone after that. Especially, it gets complicated with secrets and vault and and whatever else technology you're using at the production level. Yeah, I mean that's and the the thing is even with local development, right? Like, if you're using production secrets, you definitely want to not use production secrets for local development. Um, but a lot of the time secrets management is so complicated and annoying that people just commit secrets to their Git repository because it was like, it was more convenient to put them in the source code in the first place uh, because dealing with secrets is annoying. So those are the sort of things that, that Encore makes so easy that you know it's easier than putting the secret in the source code. How long have you been building out this product? Um, I started working on it about eight years ago, and we we raised money and actually brought in it because for for the first couple of years it was just myself, and then uh, we've had a a whole team building it for the past two ish years. Exciting, man! And and, and you're already basically in a production capacity anybody can start using the product now yep as of about a year ago it's generally available we have customers all over the world startups of varying types building go you know uh, building products that under the hood use go and in all kinds of industries whether it's b2b uh, software as a service banks uh fintech, um, retail, <laughs> you name it. We got to talk, man, because I think what might be really f cool at one of the conferences, at least like on a community day is to have four hours where people could come in and, and really go hands-on learning how to set up a, a dev environment, start writing some Go code, deploying that locally, deploying it. Like I, I think those sorts of hands-on workshops at, at conferences and community days are are huge because it still seems like vague in my brain, right? Like I want to see it, I want to feel it. That's uh, I mean, I totally agree. I think what one of the one of the struggles we've had is like the we focus a lot on like how do we build a really really excellent experience. But like you say, an experience is not really something you can describe or put on, on words on. It's something you have to, well, experience. Uh, so what we what we have seen is the the sort of most effective way is just get people to try the product because it's it's a really really good experience if you're used to you know the typical way of building Kubernetes deployed backends. It's uh, there's uh, zero YAML, for example. You know, I'm going to talk to you after we're done talking on this show because we do at, at Arden, we bring people in all the time to do like a, a lunch and learn for an hour. And I think it would be awesome if somebody, you know, over at Encore could give us an hour and really walk us through the whole thing because we've got all different sorts of client projects. We have to make recommendations for things. Uh, and how to do things, and we've got a pretty strong ops team. And anyway, I'd love to see it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bother you after we're we're done talking. I want to do yeah, a lunch and learn it hard. All right, I'm gonna this, this podcast is about you. We're gonna get back to uh, to all that. But um, 
I want to kind of put you into the time machine a little bit. I want to get a, a sense of how you got where you are today. I'd love to, I want to hear your story. So a couple things before we start. Um, what year did you go to university and then what year did you start university if you did? I did go to university. I started in 2009. Okay, perfect. So that gives me a, a kind of a time frame where you're like 17, 18 years old in, in 2009. So it sets sort of the stage for kind of where the world was. All right, favorite question, here we go. Don't think too hard, don't think too hard. First memory that pops into your head working on a computer, first memory. Working on a computer or using a computer? Using it, that first memory where you had that aha moment, that like, oh my God, this is cool moment, or oh my God, I solved that problem moment, like that first thought. So using a computer was like playing games as a kid. Uh, lots of lots of games. Age of Empires 1 comes to mind. Uh, first game I ever played was Zelda on the NES. Uh, still a huge fan of Zelda to this day. Uh, but obviously that was on a, on a console. Um, in terms of first memories of building something with a computer, it was really, you know, playing games and was like, okay, I want to share this with the world and then starting building websites. And first it was HTML, you know, you put up these, you know, construction animated GIFs uh, on your website, uh, these uh, scrolling banners and all that sort of stuff. And then realizing, oh, we could actually make this interactive. We could use a database. Uh, and I started looking into like ASP and, and that sort of thing for uh, server-side rendered pages and dynamic logic and uh, had an access database. So not PHP, you were on the Microsoft side of things. H how old were you? How old were you? Uh, this must have been, I must have been 10 by that point or nine or something like that. So how did you have um, access to the Microsoft technology at 10? Your, was there somebody, your, your parents, somebody that had access to all that licensed software? Yeah, Sweden has had a really, really it was really, really early in adopting. I mean, at this point in time, Sweden had, I think, the highest broadband penetration in the world. Um, and the Swedish government put up this program, which was like, allow every family in the country to have an affordable computer. Um, and I think it was like $300 or something. So I didn't come from any rich background or anything but uh, every basically every company in Sweden started offering it uh, to their employees uh, for a very affordable price that was sort of subsidized by the government uh, I believe you know I was very young at this point so this is just my recollection uh, from reading up on it later and yeah so it was we had uh, you know broadband at that age for something like $20 a month or something like this. And it was, you know, Sweden was, everyone was online. And it really created this really strong community that was really easy to get into. Wow. Okay. So that gave you access to the computer, to that Microsoft technology. Microsoft was so good at getting their stuff in front of everyone. 
and then you discovered ASP. Did you discover that on your own? Did you have any adults in your life helping you or other friends? It's just you. Just online. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, became the local IT technician in, uh, in the neighborhood, started doing all kinds of stuff. And then, yeah, and then I moved over to PHP, learned that, spent a lot of time building up stuff around that. Um, and then I guess my, my first big product, if you will, came from playing World of Warcraft. And in World of Warcraft, you can make user interface modifications. And so I was playing World of Warcraft a lot and, you know, realizing, oh, we can make improvements to this game. And and so I just started doing that uh, for initially for myself and realizing that actually everybody could benefit from this. So I, we just, uh, myself and a, and a friend of mine, we just started sharing it online, uh, open source, and anyone could download it. And, and so a lot of the ideas that we came up with, they became essentially standard for playing the game. So we had a website where you could download this. Um, and I think at, at its peak, we had something like 3 million active users using this open source modification, uh, you know, when they were playing the game and yeah, made a huge amount of money. Well, for a 13 year old, uh, <laughs> a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, but uh, just uh, you know, from from Google Ads on our website. Uh, so that's what I was going to ask you. How are you marketing the uh, marketing that this existed? So you're using Google Ads. No, we weren't advertising anywhere, but we had ads on our page to for us to make money because we couldn't sell the the what we were building, and. Uh, and so that was, uh, and then people just, it just spread word of mouth because everybody uh, wanted it because it was making the game better. And uh, yeah, and then. Yeah, I was just wondering how people were finding it. So you think it was just viral word of mouth. What was the name of your website? You still have the domain? Uh, well, I don't. I think it's still up. It's uh, ctmod.net ctmod.net everybody now that's listening is going to ctmod.net you think it's still up oh dude it's still it's still up and running so your friend is still hosting this thing uh yes well this looks very different to what it was back then um but uh, but nonetheless yeah so that was that was uh, subsidizing my you know computer uh, computer habits and then uh, yeah, ended up consulting with Blizzard Entertainment on sort of the direction of this. Wait, wait, not at ten, not not at ten years old. Uh, this was I was fourteen, fifteen. So wait, wait, I guess so many questions. So I I, I got to slow you down for a second here. Okay, before we get there, <laughs> fourteen, you're consulting. All right, hold on. Before we get there, before we get there, do you have any siblings? Uh, I do, two so, sisters. Were you competing for the computer with your sisters? Initially, yeah, yeah, for sure. I was sort of the old, the older brother. Uh, that was uh, unfairly. I was saying like, well, you are twins, so you get one time slot, and I get one time slot. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> How much were your parents concerned at all the amount of time you were spending on the computer related to anything else? At around uh, this time? Yes. Um, 
but uh, it was sort of in practice it never i never it never i never suffered in terms of school or friends or anything like that i was still playing soccer you know social socializing had excellent grades so i mean you can be concerned but like there weren't any any negative side effects in terms of outcomes uh it wasn't so all it, consuming you still had a life outside of the you were using the computer when you had nothing else going on in a sense well i guess <laughs> i i would i would consider it all consuming i mean it, it was a huge passion of mine uh but it wasn't at the detriment of everything else i didn't let school suffer for example okay so at 14 what happens that you get some consulting gig with a major video game company I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a paid full time gig or anything like that. It was in a very limited capacity, and it was what they realized is uh, user interface modifications are such a central part of the game that, uh, and you know, what I and others were doing was just increasingly automating the game away to the point where it was like it was helping people perform better because it was really optimizing for um like playing the game at it at the highest difficulty like doing these like large raids as they were called and the game was mandatory to be able to compete but it was taking the fun away because it was just increasingly automating people's what people were supposed to do and so rightfully blizzard wanted to keep the good parts but remove the the negative parts of that uh like how add-ons were working and so they i i think it was really insightful from them is they instead of just like them figuring it out they involved the most uh prominent members of the add-on community to actually develop this solution together and so we were all co sort of coming with our own perspectives on like, we would really like to be able to do this. How about we change how this works in that? Way? Um, and just. Uh, for... but does that mean that the, the changes you were making would become less automated? In other words, you lost, you were going to, they were about to take capability away. Yeah. With the, and, and your, and your add-ons were about to stop working essentially. Some parts of uh, parts of them that were doing the more sort of uh, they wanted basically what they wanted to preserve is that for your character in the game to be able to do something, you must it must the source must be an input uh, from you. Uh, the add-on is not allowed to make decisions on your behalf. It had to be a a physical sort of interaction you couldn't automate that anymore yeah but but it was more than that because it was also uh that was the start of it but then they realized you know you could just have someone hammer the same button <laughs> and then add-on would decide what to do with that input um and that was not really uh useful so they figured out the very elaborate system for how do we make sure that uh add-ons can sort of have limited agency but not complete agency uh so it was very sophisticated that's wild and you were basically 
mutating the code that ran locally on your machine. Yeah, it was. They had a the the game was written in C plus plus, and then they used Lua as a extension language. So all these add-ons were Lua plugins essentially that were interfacing with the API that Blizzard provided. All right. So I, I want to talk about the 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 three or four years before university, right? So basically, two thousand. What is that? Five, six, seven, eight, or six, seven, eight, nine. What other things were you doing? I'm going to call, you know, in the U.S., we call that the high school years, those four years before university. So what what other things were you interested in, um, in in your high school years other than hacking on the computer all day? I'm not sure there were that many other things. <laughs> so um, does, that mean, does that mean that as you're approaching the end of grade school and you now have to start thinking about the next the next level. Did you have in your head that you were going to be a software engineer going into university? What, what did you think you were going to, or what did you want to study heading into university? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, what I really always loved is mathematics and physics and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then programming once I got into that. Um, but I was entirely self-taught up to that point. And, and so I, my my math teacher wanted me to study mathematics. Uh, I decided I would much rather study computer science. So I, I studied computer science. And I guess I realized it was... I enjoyed it, but it was also very... Um, I mean, I guess I felt it was very disconnected from everything I already knew about software engineering and, and programming, it was, uh, well, computer science is mathematics, right? It's it's uh, much more abstract. And I think that's, I had a very easy time with it given my mathematics background, but it was, I've always been very sort of practical and pragmatic in terms of, I really care about building things that are valuable for end users and computer science wasn't really doing that <laughs> so uh yeah. so so let me step back a second because i i hear what you're saying was there a bunch of schools you wanted to apply to or there was just the one school that you knew you needed to go to no i just applied to to the one which was uh the the best school for computer science in Sweden, uh, here in Stockholm. I'm originally from northern Sweden, so I moved down here to study. Uh, All right, so you got to move out of the other house. Schools will, yeah, people in other schools will ha hate me for saying that, but they know it's true. <laughs> and it sounds like you, when, you, when you're at least the first year or two doing this degree, it was not what you expected it to be. You're saying it wasn't as much hands-on programming as it was sort of abstract concepts of, I mean, you must have had a data structures class pretty early on though. I, I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and not take uh, the university uh, degree. I didn't feel that I really learned that much. See, that's an interesting question I wanted to ask you because when I didn't, I mean, look, I went, I did my computer science degree back in like 1988, okay, 88, 89, 90. 
So obviously the tech that we were learning back then uh, doesn't really apply today. But I, the one thing I did learn through my degree was problem solving, right? Taking a problem that I had, had zero clue about and figuring out a technical, figuring out the technical solution. And remember, I didn't have the internet at all yet. So, um, you know, finding the right book was what you tried to do, whether even that was like a copy serve or something. So I imagine that you had at least some of that. Maybe the technical stuff wasn't beyond where you were, but I mean, they're throwing problems at you to solve all the time. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, it's, it's trite, but it's, it is true. Um, what I have realized is a lot of the time in university was spent sort of demonstrating uh, through fairly large projects that you could program something. And that was a lot of time and effort that was just redundant, at least for me, uh, because I had a very easy time programming already what was very i mean and then you like you learn a bunch of stuff that i i think uh, like for example you, you mentioned data structures and and algorithms definitely part of the the syllabus of course in practice rarely useful you need really the basics to do most software engineering right now what all of these specialized, like, oh, here's a very optimized way of traversing a graph under these circumstances. Like, when you need that, you would just Google because you're not going to remember that, you know, 10 years later anyway. So I think, uh, or like memorizing how to do some, uh, you know, assembly language and writing assembly on paper. It's It's useful information in the sense that it takes what you know and it it generalizes it, um, and that's sort of what I found uh, in my career is I've done a whole bunch of stuff that you know growing up as a kid I did so many different things and not because I had like a grand plan of like oh this is going to be my career and this is going to be useful I just did it because I had a passion for it and that's things like you know. Uh, we talked about the World of Warcraft stuff, and then I built a bunch of websites in PHP, and they were sort of related to uh, World of Warcraft. And then Blizzard essentially copied what I did and made it an official product of, for the game. And then I got into another game, and I built a bunch of stuff there. And then I learned how to inject uh, DLLs into executables so I could read the memory of a game and sort of pull out where everybody was playing. And then I, I used that to build uh, like a, a website for actually streaming games more effectively. And you had like a, a top-down map that was live updating. And I built that with CRMQ and uh, C++, like microservices essentially. Uh, and this is all before university. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, uh, in the years leading up to that, um, and learning how to like build my own spectator mode by flying around in the world because I knew linear algebra, and I could find an SDK for interacting with uh, an Xbox game controller that was hooked up to the PC, and you know, and 
all of these things, I think I've never used that knowledge afterwards, but when you do a whole bunch of things in software engineering, it really generalizes to, you know, it's more pattern recognition than anything where you realize like, oh, here's something that, you know, you may not need to know about assembly language, but you can sort of learn to appreciate the the nature of software in a more generalized way by learning bits of everything. Uh, so oftentimes I found like, oh, you know, I need to do something and I have this vague recollection of like how you inject the DLL into Windows executables. Like, okay, uh, you know, I, I know how to do this if I need to. So I'm kind of curious beyond the computer science classes that you were taking, I'm sure you had to take a bunch of liberal arts. Was there a particular liberal arts class that you found interesting, almost changed your mind from, no, I'm sure that didn't happen, but <laughs> come on, that anthropology class really like rang your bell, right? That was it, anthropology? No, <laughs> it was very, very little of that uh, in, in my university, actually. Uh, maybe the system isn't quite the same in Sweden. Oh, really? Um, so you didn't have a bunch of like liberal art credits you had to take for towards your degree. So it was like really like hedge down math, science. Wow. Yeah. Logic. Uh, I took cryptography, which was the the craziest of all the, the courses. Uh, really craziest as in the hardest or craziest as in just yeah. challenging? It was like, like the, f I, I got a good grade, uh, in the end, but I felt like I was failing the whole time. Like the whole, the whole, it was like the first time in a course where I'm like, this mathematics is just above wow. my, it was crazy. Uh, like first, uh, first week and they're like, okay, for homework, uh, you know, prove the prime number theorem. And that's like this very, very abstract proof. Uh, and I, I don't think anyone in the class solved it. I didn't get anywhere close, but somehow that was still considered good. <laughs> so I don't know Were what the teacher Were there people in doing. that class that had an easier time? Was it also the first time that you're around people that you could say to yourself, I'm not the smartest guy in the room or I'm not like the most knowledgeable guy in the room as relates to this subject um yeah i i wouldn't say i was great at that point i wasn't great at like socializing with all the other uh, course uh, members but it was definitely the time when it's like especially the teacher was just brilliant and it was so incredible to see because i i love mathematics i love computer science but it was sort of also the time when I realized like theory is maybe not what I care the most about. I'm just curious if that was a moment of like excitement for you or like depression in a sense, like were you, were you excited that now you had these people around you that you could feed off of, or were you kind of sad that you were not, you, no, you know, no, you know no, what I'm no. asking? Uh, yeah. I think uh, it was for me, <laughs> you know, I was giving this analogy earlier today, actually in the office, but 
what I've always felt when you when you find like an open source project that does something interesting and you go read the documentation and you just feel like a kid in a candy store where it's like, oh, that looks exciting. Oh, this is exciting. And I think it was the same thing with cryptography when you realize like there's this whole world of really interesting things that I have yet to discover. And, you know, really figuring out and uh, I mean, I think I know enough cryptography to be dangerous and I know enough to realize that uh, I shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's uh, it's uh, awe-inspiring. I, I really have a huge appreciation for for cryptography and what everyone's doing to make it uh what i think these days is is a much saner approach to modern cryptography in go for example um compared to how how things were done in the past i i you know love it or hate it blockchain i mean it's it's created a lot of new math and algorithms over the last five six years Right, yeah, which is absolutely. really exciting. So I, you know, love it or hate it, there's been a lot of advances in that space because of it. You're going to finish this undergraduate degree uh, in computer science. What are you thinking after that? You want to work or you want more school? Because now we're talking what 2013 when you're going to graduate. Yeah, um, in Sweden it's a five-year program, so it's five 2014. Okay. All right, 2014. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I was at that point, I was pretty, pretty desperate to go off and do something useful. <laughs> so I, I ended up uh, joining Spotify as a, as a software engineer uh, about a year before I graduated, actually. So in Were you interning or you, you had a part-time job there or you, you had a full-time job? Oh, full-time full job, uh, software engineer. So you had enough time to work a full-time job and then finish your, your last year degree, your last year for this uh, year? No, I never finished. Oh, you never finished. So you just kind of dropped. So in that last year, you said, I'm done. I, I want to go work. And you never finished. Interesting. Super. I, it wasn't like a grand plan or anything. It was actually, um, I was happily continuing my studies and, um, a friend of mine from the the World of Warcraft uh, add-on community, actually, he reached out because he had just finished his PhD at uh, Oxford and he was moving to Stockholm to join Spotify. And he was like, hey, you want to grab coffee? It would be great to meet up. We had, we had never met in person. Um, so I said, sure. And then, you know, we were just talking and he was like, oh, this, this job, it's awesome. Yeah, you should really join us. And I was like, well, what the heck? I might as well, like, if you can get me an interview, I might as well see what's up. And then, uh, then I ended up getting the job and it was just Spotify was, and in many ways still is the, the coolest employer in, in Sweden, in, in tech. So I, uh, I just couldn't decline. That's amazing. I, I, honestly, I didn't even know they were headquartered in, I guess they're headquartered there. So I, I didn't even know that. So you get this interview and you get this job. What, what was the first job? 
first of all, how 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 old was the company at that point? Is it new? Is this like almost startup feel? Are you like employee thirty or something crazy like that? <laughs> no, it was. This was in. Uh, I think the company was. I should know this, but I think when I joined in twenty thirteen, it was eight years old. I want to say seven or eight years old, uh, and. 2006 they were okay so they were founded in 2006 i didn't even know that and you started in 2013 yeah so i was seven years old and i was it was around 500 people at that point so they still a startup in many ways uh, but definitely not uh not an early stage startup so did you end up being in the same group as your buddy who got to the interview? Like, what was your first team and role? Um, so I joined uh, Spotify Premium, which at that point was a single team of about six or seven people. And uh, I was a backend engineer building Python uh, backend services. Uh, so I, after you didn't building know Python, PHP, you didn't know Python. I, I, Oh, I did. I oh, did. Okay. I was working in in PHP building stuff, and then I found Django actually, and that's uh, how I learned Python and was building websites with Django for many years. Um, and and then I started building everything in Python. And so when I joined Spotify, I had been programming with Python as my main language for several years. Mm. But in university in in university, you were able to use Python too. I I, I imagine you had you doing a lot of C and C plus plus. University was a lot of everything. It was a lot of Java. Uh, I learned C and C plus uh, plus self taught before that. Um, then university was Haskell. Uh, I learned Lua on my own, PHP on my own. Um, JavaScript on my own. So, so this is an exciting thing. Like you're like, so, okay. So you get this job while you're still in university. And then at some point you decide, I don't want to go back. I'm, I assume you finished whatever classes you had and you don't yes. sign up. And do you tell your family this? Do you say, look, I'm not going to finish this degree. I got this great job. That's what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my family has never been, uh, it's not like a career, like university. There were no expectations for anyone in, in our family to even go to university. So, yeah, for me, like it, as soon as I started working, I realized like I'm I'm not going to go back. This is it's too much, too much fun. Oh, that too. Well, well, and your parents, your, your family was fine. They were like, no, you do you do you, Andre. <laughs> I think if you, as a, I must have been 24, 25 at that point. But you were so close. Like, I would have tried to, um, I had two daughters that, like, in their last year decided they didn't want to do that major anymore. They didn't say they wanted to, you know, not finish the degree, but they were like, I want to change majors. And one of them did, and it took a ha an extra half a semester. And the other one, I I had to go to a counselor, and she figured out a way of graduating still in the year. 
you know, because I'm just like, you're like you're this close. Don't don't walk away from it. Like you were a year out. You were 30 credits out. You were you were at the finish line, and didn't I, nobody tried to just say just drive through the finish line. The decision I made was, you know, for better or for worse, like I, I, I think looking back on university, I'm really happy I went to university. What I what I saw at Spotify was uh, just this is obviously just anecdotes with very limited data, but I really felt that I could like recognize patterns more easily because of the university education. And like you said, it really does teach you problem solving and it does give you a lot of confidence that even if you don't know something, you know how to learn enough about it to solve the problem. Um, and that's been, been extremely useful. Um, so I, I wouldn't go back, but at the same time, I also felt that I had already learned a lot of that to the point where I'm not sure that the marginal benefit of, you know, stopping my career or putting it on pause for a year or, you know, trying to do both at the same time, that that would really be a benefit uh, over just focusing on, on, you know, software engineering uh, at Spotify. And you have no regrets even today, which is cool. So how long are you on this premium team? I mean, you get, you get there in 2013. So how long are you on this premium team? I think I worked. Uh, so when I started, it was a single team. And when I, I think I worked more or less in Spotify premium for about six years, seven wow, years. That's a long almost. time, dude. Oh, till um, like but, 20. But in, yeah. So increasingly, you know, it, I became a very senior engineer at the company that so had a lot of company level impact and it sort of becomes a gray line between, or like a fuzzy line between when are you still working in premium? If you're, you know, increasingly participating in company level technical strategy and systems design and all these sort of things. Um, but uh, most of the time was spent in premium. And what started as a single team, when I left Spotify, it was about 300 people. So it was a huge uh, you know, growth of that part of the company over time. So you left after those seven years. So you spent essentially seven years. I mean, people were pulling you in all different directions. So you were on premium, but you were doing other things. But you were essentially... That was your career there for from 13 to, to 20. Yeah. Did the tech stack at least change for you over time too? Did it, I mean, I'm assuming that's where you started to learn Go maybe? Like talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it, it uh, when I when I joined, Spotify was mostly Python everywhere. And what they realized was um, if we move... They they did some experiments because the company for like certain backend services they were under so much load because they were such a critical part of using Spotify things like the playlist service or the metadata service that serve up information about 
like a track or a playlist or an artist that I think the most requ- the most uh, high throughput service at Spotify was several million requests per second um, that they they prototyped rewriting it in in Java and I forget the exact number but I think it was something like a 40x reduction in the number of services to run that service and very quickly they realized that you know it's simply not rational because they were paying the cloud you know for for cloud hosting a huge amount of money that it's simply not rational to have these services written in python when it costs that much money like 40 times more compared to java so the company essentially decided we're going to start building everything in Java. Um, and first it was all new services. And then it became, let's try to rewrite existing services over time as our requirements change and we need to build something new. Let's try to sort of uh, over time phase out Python. Uh, but Spotify Premium was sort of it was a lot of complex business logic and it was not very high throughput um, because it wasn't really interfaced with when people were using the product. It was just interfaced with when people were signing up to buy premium and every month when it was uh, billing them in the background. So uh, that part of the system actually stayed in, in Python for, for many years beyond that. And uh, I over time realized that Python is not a great choice for, you know, payment systems, especially complex ones. Uh, there was no, there was no um, type safety. There were no type hints, no nothing. And, and so I started experimenting with uh, Go because the concurrency model was very similar to Python. Uh, and, the language is is actually very similar to to Python, and so I started building up all the tooling for the company to be able to use Go outside Python. What year was that? Did you get all right? Two things. Two things. What year was roughly was that? And did you get permission to do that before? And I'm sure somebody was telling you stop, go use Java because we're a Java shop. <laughs> there was a lot of that, yes. Uh, I I think this must have been around 2017. Uh, I think it was right after, when was Go 1.0 released? Uh, 2009, 12. 1.0 was released 2012, according to Wikipedia. Um, so yeah, it was, I think I started, I started using Go on the side, uh, around 1.0 and first it was just like for hobby projects and stuff. And then I, I started experimenting with, um, I had this crazy idea of what if we could take the whole payment system and, and do a bunch of parsing and static analysis. And then we could rewrite it to go in an automated way. 
because Go has such great support for code generation and, and reformatting source code that it's quite easy to output, you know, uh, human readable code, not just compiler readable code. And so I built this, I, I hacked on this for, for several years, actually, uh, as sort of a hobby project to, to do that. And, uh, it never, I never managed to actually get permission to do that in practice, but, uh, it, it mostly worked. I think it, I, I tried it on one of the most complex Python services we had, and I think the output was about 90% correct. And then like the remaining 10%, you would have to manually fix. Yeah, but that's not bad. Yeah. And then I built up all the like surrounding tooling, like uh, build systems and, and core libraries that were needed. Uh, Spotify had a, an internal transport protocol that was sort of similar to gRPC that was being used for service to service communication. And so I built an, a Go implementation of that and a server and all of that so that Go could be used. I mean, that's what the Go team did, right? The Go team, when they're moving from C to Go in 1.4 to 1.5, they did the same thing, right? They, they transpiled that C code to Go and did the rest by hand. Yeah, no, I think it, it's definitely a viable thing. Uh, in in C, I mean, the the semantics are closer, and in Python, you can do a lot of crazy things that are simply not possible in Go with meta programming and that sort of thing. Um, but because the Python code at Spotify was very boring Python in in a good sense, it wasn't a lot of crazy meta programming. It was very, you know, it was a payment system, so it had to be fairly understandable, so to say. I'm curious, I'm going to get back to this, but I'm curious how Go ended up on your radar screen 2013. It's a good question. Uh, oh, I know actually. So this friend I mentioned that uh, that built, uh, uh, that that uh, got me to join Spotify, he did his PHP, uh, sorry, his PhD uh, dissertation and at at Oxford and it was a uh, it was about building a let me see if i remember this he was building a file system and he wanted to build it in a like a concurrent file system and he he was researching like uh, concurrency paradigms and he came across uh, the con uh, csp so communicating serial processes uh, which is like the classic uh, paper that uh, I think Go, Go's concurrency model is is sort of based on uh, by Hoare, if I remember correctly, and and so he built this in Go. I think this was way before 1.0, and and so that and then he told me about Go, and so it was sort of on my radar well well before 1.0. Wow, so. Now it's, let me think here. So in 2017, you decide um, you're going to start trying to build some of the things you need in Go in Spotify. And are you being allowed to do that? Or are you just doing it to prove to everybody that this is going to be better than Java? Um, yeah, part of it was that. Part of it was 
um, just frustration with with Python for large complex, you know, financial uh, systems, and and part of it was just it's a it's a fantastic language, and you know, I've always been hacking on stuff on the side, so it wasn't really impacting my my work time. It was uh, as a side project outside of work, um, and then. Uh, I, many years after the fact, you know, I I got it was sort of a lucky. The the company accidentally benefited because they, like everyone else, adopted Kubernetes, and then they needed to build a bunch of Go tooling, and then everything was sort of set up for that. Um, so just out of the blue, one day I got a message on Slack about this uh, this transport protocol that I mentioned that was sort of like gRPC. Uh, someone was just pinging me like, "Hey, you know how how do I do this in your library?" And and I was just like, "Well, what are you using the library for? It's it's uh, you know Go is not a, an approved language. You know I was a very very one of the most senior engineers at the company at this point. So wait 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 before you finish this story, you published this library on an internal." Get so it was there. So people knew you were doing Go at that point. Yeah, of course. I was uh, the the company advocate for Go. Um, yeah, so someone someone just pinged me on Slack and was starting to ask questions. And at this point, you know, this was two years after I built this library. You know, I was one of the most senior engineer senior engineers at the company, so I I felt like it's great that they're using Go, but I also have to be on the you know, responsible tech, technical leader. Uh, so I started, you know, digging, like, I'm like, you, you shouldn't use this, you know, Go is not a, an approved language and so on. So it was like, what are you using this for? And it turns out, uh, I think they were interfacing with some, uh, something that had to be in Go for maybe it was some early Kubernetes tooling or something. And it turns out this this server was apparently it ended up being like a critical dependency of a a core service of the company, and <laughs> I had just built this uh, and it was very well tested, but it was not in production. You know, it was just me uh, building it and and testing it and validating it, and then it had no users, and suddenly it was critical part of. Uh, one of the core services of the company. Well, but think back, like what was the very first thing you built in Go that ended up having some utility, even if it was just a tool, utility in, in, in sort of in Spotify? Um, it was, uh, it was the, uh, in Spotify Premium, we had a, like when I joined, everything was deployed and released and deployed as Debian packages. So there was this really old and clunky process for building Debian packages and it was super manual. And so I wanted to automate this so that we could have CI and CD. Uh, this was quite early. So that wasn't really a common practice at that time. Um, but we had a bunch of servers and there wasn't Kubernetes or anything at the time. So 
you had to to actually release new code. You had to SSH into machines and like run apt-get update and then apt-get install and restart all of the services. It was very manual. So I built, and I, I realized like Go has a great concurrency. It's easy to use. Um, it has a great, you know, SSH uh, library for SSH, programmatic SSH. So I built a sort of a framework for uh, concurrent uh, pipelines for for sort of managing concurrency and struct like structured concurrency, and then I built a bunch of tasks to do uh, certain operations. Uh, and so you could use the the framework. I called it uh, Doppler for some reason. Uh, you could use that uh, to then build a very configurable deployment pipeline that was sort of maximally concurrent while still like propagating errors and so on. And uh, so we then started using that for all deploys of all things Spotify Premium. And it was in use in production. And it was basically without fault. I mean, it was working perfectly for, I want to say, four or five years before it ended, eventually ended up being deprecated and, and moved over to Kubernetes tooling. Wow. But, okay. So then once this other team is starting to build stuff in Go, thanks to Kubernetes, I mean, that just becomes a, a complete green light for everything Go at that point, right? At, at least for you and your team? No. No. We're restricting it to Kubernetes. <laughs> yes. I think uh, I think that's still true to this day. Uh, if you have to interface with the Kubernetes APIs, you can use Go at Spotify. Uh, for all other things, it's all Java. Gotcha. So, in what happens in 2020 when you're you've done your seven years at Spotify? I'm sure you could have spent another seven. So, what happens in in 20? Why do you leave Spotify? Um, at that point I had been working on Encore for, I want to say two or three years and it was getting to a point where it was, you know, you could build, you know, production ready backends with it. All right. Hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. So you start building this while you're at Spotify, the last three years of Spotify, but you can't use it at Spotify. So how are you dog fooding the tech if you can't use it where you're working? Great question. I mean, dog fooding is extremely important uh, to actually build something that is easy to use. A lot of it is just, uh, you know, building something that uses the product alongside building the product. Like we're doing this to this day. We have monthly dog fooding. Like every every single engineer at Encore are building their own side projects, uh, like on company time, using Encore, not just building Encore, because that's how you actually learn the frustrations, the the difficulties of of using the product, what are the rough edges, and so on. Uh, so I started doing that from from day one. 
building example uh, backends that used the product while I was building the product so that you could actually test things out. It's sort of like what TDD encourages is you can't really reason about whether uh, an API is useful without actually using the API and test can be a really good way of doing that. So you're basically working two jobs at this point. You're, you're working Spotify, right? You're doing your 40 hours a week there and you're probably putting in close to 30 hours a week building. And the more the product matures, the more time you're spending on it because you're seeing it, you're seeing it. So you made a you make a decision in 2020 that you want to go full-time, try to, try to do this full-time, but how are you going to fund that? How do you decide that I'm going to fund this now? Were you just saving, 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 and said, okay, I got a year in the bank? Yeah, basically. Um, so for the first, I I worked on it just paying myself out of my own pocket for, I want to say, the first 18 months or so. And uh, yeah, I mean, for, I was very fortunate that, that Spotify offered me that uh, that ability um, by actually uh, having a comfortable salary from being a senior engineer at Spotify and then having relatively low living expenses. You know, I've never had a very uh, luxurious lifestyle or anything like that. So it's uh, just putting it on a big pile and then eating from that for, for an, a year and, and a half. But obviously, as we all know, that's not sustainable, right? Like at some point money's going to come in. So I'm guessing at some point you say, I, I need money. So when do you decide it's time to start looking at some VC money? Because that's that takes time. That's a whole nother track. You're going to lose that. You know, you lose a part of the company when you do all that. And you have to feel like you're ready. So what is it, like 12 months in, you finally decide, okay, I got enough runway for another uh, six months and I got to raise this money or I'm going back to work? To To realize what our vision for Encore is, it was clear from very early on, like we need, this is not, it, it can't be a bootstrap company because we are building a product for startups and other companies to use. And so our sort of, the, the trajectory of the, not the company in terms of like revenue and growth like that, but in terms of how quickly can we deliver on functionality that our customers need that uh, needed to match their own trajectories, right? Like they're hiring people, they're growing quickly. And so we need to be able to match that so that we can deliver and, and keep uh, meeting their demands for whether it's new functionality or you know more valuable uh, tools. And so that was clear very early on that it will need to be a VC funded company. Um, so it was more a question of when than if. And I think what I realized from sort of reading up on all of this is um, it's, it's a really good time to do it uh, when like to actually raise money when you have some sort of clear traction um and so i i started working on encore myself and then after doing it 
about six months after I quit Spotify, I, I got my co-founder to join me, who was also from Spotify. We had worked together there. And so we started both doing it full time. And then about four months after that, we decided uh, now uh, we had uh, a customer already using it. Now it's time to actually open source the the core part of the product because we were hearing from companies that, you know, this is really useful. This is really valuable. But if if it's all closed source, like we can't really trust it because like, what if you go under, right? Uh, so we, it was very clear, like, okay, let's, uh, let's open source this whole thing. Let's make sure that every piece of code that you use, uh, you know, when your application runs, uh, when your app, when Encore generates code, when it parses the co- your code, all of these things, it's entirely open source. That way, if Encore as a company goes under, then we can like our customers can keep uh, like it's not going to hold their company hostage. It's not going to stop working or anything like that. And that was really important. And so we we open sourced the the code base and we published it on Hacker News and just immediately went from zero stars to like 2,500 stars in a day. Uh, And it clearly resonated with people that like, okay, here's something that's trying to do something new for Go. Uh, And not just for Go, but for backend development in general. You know, here's a sort of framework like Django or Ruby on Rails or something like that, but not for web development, but for backend development. Um, and so that cl- clearly resonated. So after we did that, we decided now is a good time to actually go off and raise money. Um, so that's that's when when we did it. Okay, so you you raise money, you get you get somebody to put their hands in the pocket, which isn't easy, and you've done that. But from my understanding, these VCs are looking at the end of the day. They're not looking at you to generate revenue. They're looking at you to be able to sell tech, I guess. So like in your head, what would you like, what do you consider success for Encore three, four, five years from now? Do you want to maintain a company generating revenue or are you looking for, let me get this to a point where somebody bigger than me wants it as part of their portfolio? We've we've been approached already, but it's I think sort of the most obvious, in a sense, buyer would be like one of the major cloud providers because that's really the industry we're operating in. But I think it's it's really problematic because one thing that Encore enables is. Uh, sort of being more independent of your cloud provider. It's about reducing lock-in. And I worry that by uh, being acquired by one of the cloud providers, you would that would be the first thing that they would strip, <laughs> right? Uh, so our goal is is not to be acquired. We're we're deliberately not pursuing like a growth at all costs, uh, you know, 
give away the product for free and then figure out monetization later when when people depend on it and you can like uh, uh you know just fuel growth by setting vc money on fire and and then getting acquired as a way of sort of saving the company right i mean that's that's a strategy that really can work if that's your goal um but we so we charge money for it you know it needs to be sustainable and i think our customers appreciate that um because it means that we actually have a sustainable business model that means that uh we can we can keep working on this because you know what we're driven by is not uh you know i'm a software engineer and i've I've experienced the problems firsthand that Encore is designed to solve. And that's really what we're trying to do. And to me, it's really important that we can keep delivering on that vision and keep working towards that. And the open source component means that our customers are uh, comfortable that, you know, if the company uh, doesn't work out or if we get acquired or, you know, whatever, or, they they're not going to be held hostage neither by like things will stop working or by you know a larger company deciding that like oh actually we're gonna we're gonna entirely uh you know change how this works overnight okay but the the moment you've open sourced it you've essentially made it free though didn't you so so how does the revenue work here yeah so i think the the way people use like it's really important that you can take your product like if you're a startup or any company building with encore what's extremely important is that you can take your product and build and deploy your backend without talking to us because that's how you can be sure that you know if encore the company disappears you're not going to be held hostage or your app will not stop working uh but that doesn't mean that you know we can't provide additional value beyond that uh, so most uh, most of the people who are using encore are using it via our uh, cloud platform and that part is not open source um, and that's how like to use that part that's what we charge for and that provides a lot of okay so you, you have your own cloud you have basically your own cloud so it's host encore is hosted in a sense no, no. okay um what what that provides is sort of the infrastructure management for that goes into your own cloud uh so you retain full control of the infrastructure um but actually setting up and managing uh, all of the the cloud infrastructure it requires a lot of sort of state and management of all of that and and uh, observability integrations with like your cloud provider uh, encore monitors your cloud infrastructure 24/7 and and uh, actually pays attention to if any changes are happening and all of this uh, it has CI and CD built in. So uh, you can do all of that yourself, uh, but a lot of people choose to use Encore for the convenience of actually 
managing that for you. Uh, so that's sort of the distinction. That's cool. But it still so, goes into your own cloud account. So uh, you retain full control over everything that your application is doing. Uh, but the convenience of the workflow comes from using Encore with... Yeah, so I'm not going to set platform. up my own HashiCorp products or Argo CD and all these things. You have a that one solution that I can just um, attach myself to and get all those things in more in one place. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We got like 10 minutes yet left. And I do want to ask you this because since you're building a platform that automates a lot of things for developers, I'm super curious what your thoughts thoughts are on chat GBT and AI and how those things are going to uh, find themselves in your solution moving forward. So is this about like how how that relates to Encore or I just... think so. You said you're doing code gen, you're doing this, you're doing these things. I imagine that you've started to think about how s systems like chat GPT and, and AI yeah. and how they're even getting tailored, right? People are using these large language models today, but they're tailoring the data model for specific use case. So I'm wondering if you've thought about that kind of stuff and where you think it fits into Encore. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, um, I I mean, I think so. Some I think some people out there they look at what uh, generative AI does today and just say, well, that's not very remarkable. It's not going to change anything. I think then you're not looking at the trajectory of the, these tools. Uh, I think the how the industry will change is it's going to be a, a massive shift. I don't think software engineering will become uh, redundant, but I do think we need to be prepared to shift what we do uh, over time as these tools become more capable. And so as it relates to Encore, um, we already have like several of our, our uh, customers are actually building their own tooling to like automate their own development uh, to like generate microservices uh, that are uh, that leverage Encore to do that. And the way Encore works is uh, Encore has a bunch of Go packages that provide like APIs and, and functions for uh, declaratively defining cloud infrastructure. So if you want to have a, a pub sub topic, for example, um, what you do with Encore is you import Encore's pub sub package, and then you declare a package variable uh, that is the, the, the that represents the pub sub topic of your choice. Uh, so if you want to have like every time a user signs up, I want to have a pub sub topic that that any microservice or any any service in my architecture can listen to. Um, you you just define that as an object in your program, just like a normal Go variable, right? And then uh, what Encore does is it it parses your source code and it finds all of these annotations. 
and it uses that to build up an understanding of your system. So not like an individual microservice, uh, but really your whole system, all of your services, how do they interact? What infrastructure do they use? How do they use it? Uh, and so on. Uh, as well as, you know, what's the data being passed here? What's the request and the response schemas of all of your APIs and so on? And that's that's sort of how Encore works. Uh, you use, use Encore, and the first thing Encore does is it parses all of this, and it builds up a giant graph of your system that contains all of this knowledge. And I think that's incredibly valuable when it comes to AI because that's structured information that can be used by the AI to uh, provide better information to make code generation, like to actually generate code uh, more uh, correctly. Uh, and so what you can do already today, uh, and we're, we're gonna release you know, AI powered tooling to make this even easier, but you can, you can take, uh, you know, a, a prompt, like I want to create a microservice that, uh, you know, integrates with uh, this, uh, I don't know, email provider to send an email. And, and then you can, you can feed that uh, prompt with additional context. And what you can say is like, here are all of my Encore services. Here are the endpoints that they have. Here are the databases that exist. Here are the PubSub topics that exist. Uh, here is, and if you need additional information about them, here's the additional information. Like here's the input to that API. Here's the response to that from that API. And that provides a really, really valuable way of providing additional information to make this sort of, you know, human computer, you know, feedback loop uh, much more useful and valuable because you can actually use the structured nature of Encore and the standardization that Encore provides to make it an even more sort of compelling uh, experience. Yeah, that's pretty wild because you're basically, you're, I mean, you're parsing that code out to get to the information so you can generate everything. See, that's interesting to me. That's super interesting. So the code that I'm writing stays really simple. Um, and you're doing all the wiring in the back based on decisions I made in the code. Yeah, and AI is going to be able to really enhance that for sure. I mean, it, it sort of comes back to what you mentioned at the start uh, about my talk, which is, you know, what's really interesting about, you know, Encore fundamentally is about it, it, it forces some constraints on how you do things, you know, like this is how you define an API. This is how you define a pub subtopic, um, but the and from in one sense that can feel limiting. You know, I can't do it in any way I want. Uh, but what comes out of that is just enormous amounts of innovation that that springs from the fact that actually these constraints enable reasoning about software in a very different way. And that enables, you know, a lot of freedom in another sense. Yeah, no, I, I, for sure, right? Because you're, 
you've defined that so well that you can now extrapolate from that and then build a lot on top of it. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. All right. We are out of time and I'm definitely going to push again that everybody watch that video. That's going to be in the show notes from, from that talk. Are you going to be at Golang UK this year? That's the plan. I'm not uh, going to be speaking, but my colleague, Dominic Black will be speaking. Nice. You got, you setting up a booth or anything over there as well? Uh, TBD. We shall see. To be <laughs> okay, that's cool. That's fair. That's fair. But it's coming up soon. I mean, uh, summer. It's gonna, you know, time is flying. Anyway, uh, thanks for spending all this time with us. Uh, we'll put this in the show notes as well. But if anybody wanted to reach out after hearing the show, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Um, so, uh, a couple of ways you can find me on Twitter. That's uh, underscore. E Andre, and uh, other than that, uh, you can always check out uh, Encore.dev for Encore. We also have a, a Slack, uh, and I'm also on the Gophers Slack, so you can find me there at at E Andre. Brilliant. Okay, this is Bill and Andre signing off for the Arden Labs podcast. I didn't say that right. The Arden Labs podcast. And I hope to see everybody again real soon.